everyone. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show on this Friday. We really appreciate you tuning in. I'm your host, Tracy Siska, Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our work at chicagojustice.org. Okay, this is our last show at 5.30 Central, starting next week, Monday and Friday, 9 a.m. Central, and Wednesday at noon Central. And we're looking to hook up a couple interviews. We have some invitations out. We're communicating with people, but hopefully, hopefully by midweek, we bring you some interviews um, on the topics of the day. And we're going to get right to it today. Oh, wow, bad picture. But segment one is about the title of the article from the Sun-Times, Ex-Cop Gets Probation for Off-Duty Beating Outside Andersonville Bar. And this story is about Eric Elkins, 47-year-old. He was facing multiple felony counts. From the story goes, such as it is, on this incident, his group of people he was with that were drunk started throwing stuff or food at a table full of a couple other gentlemen. It gets taken outside. There's a fight. Um, one of the people at the other table, who were the victims supposedly in the case, breaks his ankle, among other, other injuries involved in the case. Elkins and his group, I believe, are arrested. Elkins is a Chicago police officer. Oopsies. Now something we're going to talk about before we get to the plea deal. And this is a common theme if you're on this show. You can look back at our publishing on our website from this summer. John Cotanzara, 23 years of misconduct and social media postings. I don't know what you would call that, but it's a lot of dislike for a lot of minorities. Pretty much all the minorities you can possibly think of. But anyways, in, those, in that research, it talks about his 50 complaints. 50 complaints over a 23-year career. 50, right? And more and more as you're talking about, or you get into the, you delve into the histories of problematic officers you're almost automatically getting to a, to, you'll get to a point where you look at their complaint history and it's like 15, 20, 25, 30. I mean, Cotton Zara blows it out of the water with 50. We had an officer, and I can't remember his name right now. We talked to uh, uh, several episodes ago now of the show. He had 47 or 43 in 20, 20 years. I mean, just unbelievable numbers, right? It's like hard to imagine how... With that many complaints filed against you, you can possibly keep your job. And then this shows you goes into the contract that another contract was just ratified by the city council within the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, I think. Excuse me. What you see is that it's the contracts in the police union that are keeping these officers on the street. Otherwise... It, any business would have taken this person off from dealing with customers. Cotton Zara, the other officer I can't remember. Alkins has 35 internal investigations. Excuse me. Over 19 years. 35. 
35. How do you keep this guy on the street? How do you keep him on the street? It's unbelievable. And this shows you how broken the accountability system is, the police department is, the police contract is. They just keep these guys on the street. I mean, and it, this is not something, this is something that's persisted across um, superintendent terms, right? When Jody Weiss, the former FBI director, was the superintendent, and this goes from about... 2007, 2008 to 2011, around that time frame. I know he left in around February, January, February 2011 because Ron was not going to keep him and they didn't renew his contract. So Superintendent Weiss um, authorized, I should lay back up and say, Superintendent Weiss issued a general order. In that general order, it authorized officers to carry the assault rifles. The M4 assault rifles that they carry now, many officers do, that was authorized by Jody Weiss. Okay, Superintendent. Hopefully you did this responsibly and ethically and morally. Well, did he? Well, it turns out he didn't. Because in the general order, towards the back, towards the bottom of it, the back of it, the bottom of it, you'll see a, a couple lines. And what it says, basically, is supervisors have no ability to regulate which of the officers they supervise, if any, can carry the M4 once they pass the meager, weak, unbelievably ridiculous qualifying at the academy. That's right. Supervisors can't step in. So the academy has no idea what this person's record is, how he is on the street, he or she is on the street. They just qualify him into qualifying. We can go into that. Maybe I should do a separate story on that. Awful, awful, awful. But we had in the general order that their immediate supervisors who best know their behavior on the street and their um, dedication and quality of work can't regulate, can't, can play no role in regulating whether those officers under their command can, can carry the M4. It's just endemic to Chicago policing. Now, whether Weiss put that in or someone that was a long-termer in the police department slipped that in, but Weiss let it go through and passed in his time. It's mind-blowingly bad. I got contacted during this time that this was starting to be circulated, and it, I don't think it had yet been cemented in stone, but a draft was circulating. I got contacted by a police source of mine who said, please stop this. Please stop this. It's ridiculous. There has to be a lot more control over who can carry these types of weapons. And as long as an idiot qualifies for it, no matter how dumb the cop is, how poor of a cop is, how brutal a cop is, as long as they pass that meager qualifying exam, they get the gun. That is how broken this department is, even when it act like an ex-FBI agent external from the department comes in, he's the one that authorized and signed that general order. This is why nothing gets fixed in the department. It cannot be left to them. They won't do it. Because the Elkins continue to slip through the cracks. 
Jason Van Dyke had 27 complaints against him that we knew of, and there was a four or five gap in the, in the complaint history at that time. At the time he shot Laquan McDonald, he had, like, he had 27 complaints that we knew of. Why was he on the street? Why was Elkin still on the street? Even if you have to pay them, stick them on a desk, rack up the complaints, you get stuck on a desk. It's unbelievable that these people are still on the street. So let's get a little more about Elkin's, Elkin's history. From the article, in 2016, Elkins got probation as part of a plea agreement that allowed him to avoid prison time and having to register as a sex offender after he was charged with a sex crime for touching a teenager's penis during a family reunion in Michigan. Yep, 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 yep. Yep. So Elkins this time, Cook County State's Attorney Kim's Fox office, by the way, remember how tough she is on cops. You can read the police blogs. They're crazy. We'll have uh, more Martin Pre. I, I pronounce it Pre, but I pray. But I, I believe I've mispronounced it. Um, so I think it's Pray or something like that. We'll get it set up on Monday. We'll get it all corrected. But he was facing multiple felonies for that bar fight. When he ended up pleading guilty was two misdemeanors. He got probation. And he got 40 hours of community service, and he's banned from law enforcement. Now, I'm not sure what that banned in law enforcement means. Is he banned from Illinois or banned from the entire country or world? I don't know if he moved any other state, how they would know anything about that ban. And as long as they don't, um, as long as you, you can be a cop with misdemeanors, he's still eligible. So I question the legitimacy of the ban. I understand it might work if he stays local here but i don't understand what it does for him if he moves um we don't want this guy on the street again 35 complaints now facing multiple felonies it seems like twice once for a bar fight at least once for it seems like sexual assault and he's still a cop now that probation was in michigan it wasn't in the chicago cook county area so we can't yell at them now, as far as this misdemeanor probation, was it the right sentence? I'm torn with that, to be honest with you. I'm torn with that I, about how to come down on that. I am 100% convinced that there's nowhere near enough information coming out from the courts, and we may have some... Um, we're working on that problem aggressively right now at uh, the Chicago Justice Project. Um, however, we don't have no, we don't have enough information coming out. There's no way to know what someone facing these types of felony charges would normally get. Now, I have heard this from many of people, obviously on the left in Chicago, and I've even heard this from an officer or more often. Multiple officers, I should say. Should cops be held to a higher standard? Whether on duty or off duty, should they be held to a higher standard? My answer is yes. No, you're just a cop hater. Hear me out. Ladies and gentlemen, you are trained to use physical force. You are licensed by the government with the authority in pro pro proper circumstances to take someone's liberty. 
in the proper circumstances, you're able to deprive them of life. Should those who are the few in our community, so let's say Chicago has 12,000 officers right now, who knows what the exact number is, but 12,000 out of 2.7 million, I think you're pretty special. So yes, they should be held to a higher standard. Is two misdemeanors, probation, 40 hours community service, and banned from law enforcement a higher standard, being banned from his job? Now, he had already resigned from the Chicago Police Department at this time, at the time of taking this, it's just published, so he was already out of the gig, at least in Chicago. I don't know. My instinct is to say this is generally the kind of thing you get for what happened. Should cops get more? Probably. Yes, they should be held to a higher standard. Um, I think that's just a reality. I think something we need to enforce. Um, if you look at this story, it is almost um, in the, you know, uh, the link will be for the podcast editors when the podcast posts to our site. Under the news section, you can go there and get all the links to all the things we're talking about and showing. It was a really weak, short story. Something, there should have been a lot more to it. I mean, the sometimes the story is really short. No major context around it that I gave you about this. None of that was to be found. It's a nice quick hit story that takes 10 seconds, you know, no, I'm sorry, 10 minutes to produce. Very sad. But this idea of, um, this idea of accountability, it's going to connect to the next segment. Oh, I reversed the pictures for some reason. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. The next segment is four guns stolen in Wisconsin. Oh, they connected a third segment. Four guns stolen in Wisconsin have been linked to dozens of shootings here. Authorities say it's an example of how illegal guns end up on the streets of Chicago. This is a Chicago Tribune story. The visual is of the Sun-Times. Boo. I reversed them. Sorry about that. I will do better next time. Okay. So this Tribune story. I gotta say, and maybe it's because I'm such a follower and reader of the of the media on crime and violence. There's some aspects of this are so, sort of interesting, but it's just not a hundred percent there. So what's the story about? In essence, burglary at a gun shop in Wisconsin. Okay. And the crux of the story is around that there's 11,000 or so confiscated guns in Chicago. This is in 2019. 460, less than 5%, and are from Wisconsin, Wisconsin gun stores. Now, the interesting part of this, which starts to get, I said, there's a little interesting to it, is one gun is most likely linked to 27 shootings and two homicides. Now, why you would ask what I say somewhat or most likely connected to those? 
the article, if you read it, if you really read it, it seems somewhat speculative that there are these connections. The cops think so-ish, but they're not 100% sure-ish. I don't know why you would run the story unless you knew for sure that these were the connections. So one gun is most likely somewhat-ish, kind of, sort of-ish, tied to 27 shootings and two homicides. Okay, I mean, it seems pretty... Seems like a lot, right? And it might very well be a lot of shootings. But with all the stuff that's been written on about straw purchasers and what it takes to the... um, the gun market in Chicago, and this has been written on a lot. That's why not a whole lot is new in this story at all, except for the fact that one gun was linked to 20 side shootings and two homicides, they think. Hence again, if you don't have that, I'm not sure you published a story. Now, we know that some guns get used and then dumped right away. Some guns get sold, used and then sold or rented. So it would seem to me that guns that are sold or rented or traded across, of course, they're going to be linked to other shootings. Now, what would be interesting is if they had data on how many shootings a typical gun is related to. And if this is such an outlier, why it is and why the cops think so. And then go into like who was shot. Is there any pattern to it? Was it one like click or crew on the street that was incredibly violent and they shot 27 people and killed them? Or is this gun something that just got passed along, passed along, passed along, passed along? If that's the case, if it's the latter with the passing along, I don't think that's a really big number. I don't know. And honestly, they don't know because they didn't do the groundwork. There's a lot in here. I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a fair amount in this story. It was way too long. First of all, for the little bit of content they had, it was way too long. But secondly, the details about the robbery, and to me, the interrogation are just stupid. They detail a robbery in a, a gun store in Wisconsin. Gun store robberies are common. Why do I need a, a step-by-step-by-step-by-step uh, about the robbery? Why do I need to know it's New Year's and that all the police were all on these things? And that's how they got the police were, you know, had other things going on. So they didn't respond to the gun shop right away. And oh my God, and they got them out of the case. I don't care, and no one in Chicago cares. That had no meaning to me. And then they do a little bit of a detail on the interrogation about how the suspect in the, the, the gun shop burglary has been arrested. I believe he's been, been arrested, right? And then they're talking to him about selling guns or something like that, and he's like, I've never sold a gun in my life, and by the way, I want a lawyer, goodbye. They do all this buildup in it about how the detectives like winning him over with giving him coffee and they're making sure there's vanilla um, flavoring in the, in the coffee so that, you know, because there's no flavoring in the jail, he's going to win him over. Who cares? Who cares? They should have done less of that groundwork, cut that out of the story, and did more groundwork about the actual guns per year. How many shootings the average gun confiscated connected to? How much an outlier is this really? Why do they think it's an outlier? 
Do they think this gun is getting passed along or is this one crew shooting people? Now, here's the possibility about the latter part of what I just asked for. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. The cops, they don't know. I just think, I think that's a really interesting number that they were able to dig up from some records. I don't think the number in and of itself is the story. I think they should have led them to a much bigger story, but they didn't do the groundwork. They got a, they got some uh, um, BS details about the interrogation and the robbery. Yay! I don't know what that does the public in Chicago. Okay, we're going to quickly turn in our third segment tonight to a Washington Post article. Um, I am, I have an invitation. If you know um, Robert Klumko from who is the, I think, police. Um, let me see here because I just want to get it straight. Um, can I find it? Yes. He's the criminal justice, uh, covers criminal justice in America from policing the broader justice system and the ongoing campaign for reform. This was a good article. Um, and it's in the Washington Post. We're going to go over it briefly, but I have a email into Robert to have him come and join the show in the pod so we can talk about this article. For our podcast audience, before off-duty police shooting, Chicago officer had long complaint record. Should the city pay? It's a really interesting story, and it's been covered a little bit in Chicago. Patrick Kelly and his friend Michael, Mikey Laporta, were college roommates. Um, they were longtime friends. Um, supposedly, Kelly fired a shot and shot Mikey Laporta in the head. Laporta survived. You can see a picture of him if you read the article. He survives it. And he's had all, they detail all his struggles since being shot. Um, but how did we get to the conclusion that Kelly shot Laporta? Because that's not how it was. For many years, the cover-up CPD, is what we should probably call them, covered it up. They were convinced Laporta had tried to commit suicide. Cover up. Let's get to the article real quick. No one in the family ever reported Kelly, who was the subject of 19 misconduct allegations before the January 2010 shooting connection, multiple allegations. Again, they figured nothing would be done, having grown up in a blue-collar southwest Chicago neighborhood where lots of people work for the city, many of police officers, and the badge is often seen as a shield from public scrutiny. That's right. His family knew he was screwed up, and they did nothing because everything is covered up. Laporta sued the city, and a federal jury awarded him $44.7 million, saying city of Chicago government should be held liable even though Kelly was not working when he fired his gun. The city successfully appealed last month. Laporta filed a petition for certiori to the, uh, to the Supreme Court, asking the justices to reinstate the verdict. The appeal chances are remote because he was off duty. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he has that gun because he's a cop. So what you do off-duty once you're a police officer, we talked about this earlier in the first segment, you do, you do it, you're doing it because you are a cop and you got to be held to higher standards, the city should pay. And if the city would pay, no, 
let's not get to that because that wouldn't happen. This is something I disagree with flatly. Among academics, it's accepted that it's a key way to increase control over police officers and decrease misconduct. Erwin Chermanuski, law school dean at the University of California, Berkeley, said of the legal underpinnings of Laporta's case. But the Supreme Court has made it very hard to sue cities for police misconduct. And I think if cities could be held more easily liable, they would do more to control and prevent misconduct in the long term. Makes sense, except he's completely and utterly wrong for the most part. Why? Chicago, Exhibit 1, they pay out tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars every year. Nothing changes. No one cares. Mayor Daley didn't do anything. Mayor Emanuel didn't do anything. And Lightfoot is dragging her feet as fast to making it reforms as slow as humanly possible. Let's get a couple little more about the article. Chicago and its police department spent eight years arguing that Kelly 41 never shot Laporta. They believe Kelly, who said he'd have several drinks with an old friend but wasn't drunk and stepped away long enough for his friend to retrieve Kelly's service weapon in his bedroom and try to kill himself. Police investigators followed, failed to follow basic evidentiary procedures in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, according to the findings of the Chicago Civilian Office of Police Accountability, or COPA. Among issues raised by Laporta's attorneys in civil court, Police failed to obtain fingerprints from Kelly's bedside drawer to support or refute his claim that Laporta retrieved the weapon. Investigators failed to test sinks and bathtubs in the home for evidence of blood being rinsed down the drain. And investigators bagged Kelly and Laporta's clothes in groups rather than individually by garment, rendering a blood splatter analysis useless. Way to go, Chicago police. Way to cover up. You're good at it. Hold on. When you look at all the evidence they didn't collect, it's clear that they approached the scene. They approached the scene with the idea that it was a suicide attempt, and that James, uh, uh, it's because someone from Copa said. Then they're clear Kelly. Then they clear Kelly and close the case within a day. Of course, it's cover up CPD. Kelly became belligerent when told he could not accompany the report of the hospital and took a swing at police sergeant Charmaine. Kilbasa? Kilbasa? According to the police board, he was arrested in the assault on Kilbasa, but changes were never, charges were never filed. The Porter's attorneys alleged that Kelly captured on film, relieving himself in the cell with his back to the camera, urinating on his hands to thwart a gunshot residue test that would come later that day. All right, last part. Ray Borderdorf was the internal affairs investigator who breath-tested Kelly to determine whether he was drunk at the time of the encounter with Kibasa, the police sergeant. He waited seven and a half hours to do so, near the maximum allowed in the police contract, and says the delay was because he was waiting for supervisors to go ahead. Kelly still had a blood alcohol level of 0.093, above the legal limit to drive. Brought off cringe when it was suggested years later that Kelly may have urinated on his hands before the interaction. Eight hours later, and he still blew over 0.08. He was probably hammered. Hammered. This is a great article. This is mind-blowing accountability. This is the same thing the police did years ago with uh, a couple, and I think it was the husband that got shot in the head, and they they didn't investigate it, and they threw the rug behind the police department, and there was a massive cover-up, and 
There was never really able. I think she eventually committed suicide, or I may have had it reversed. Um, but th they never did an investigation there either. It's cover up, cover up, cover up. That's all the CPD do. The CPD do. That's all what the CPD does. It's automatic cover up when one of theirs is involved. It's unbelievable. So eventually, this case closed, whatever, gets flipped, COPA investigates, gets reopened, COPA finds that there's a problem. And Laporta wins a huge settlement. The court overrules it because supposedly the police department, the city's not supposed to pay for what cops do off-duty, even though they're doing it with the guns they use as police officers. Ridiculous. It, he should have been... The city should have to pay. It would make no difference. No difference. The police, the, these settlements don't do anything to the CPD. They don't do anything to police accountability. They just don't. It's a total waste of time. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, we need to turn the legislation. We cannot count on the police accountability system. It will, all, it will always, in the end, long-term fail us on a systemic level. It is not the answer. It's proven through the decades in Chicago. It is not the answer. The answer is legislation. And we need to get moving and get the fire on the city council to start doing things. The, general, the Illinois General Assembly started moving very slowly. We need to speed that up. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you tuning in. For podcast listeners, when we do these um, upcoming interviews, we are going to be doing, um, the podcast will contain extended interviews with all of our uh, guests. So if you're watching this, um, subscribe to the Chicago Justice Podcast and you too can get those extended interviews and other things we're going to be bringing strictly to the podcast. All right, thank you everyone. I will see you Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Have a great weekend.